Hello, and welcome to the New Matters Podcast. My name is Mike Tarselli, and I'm the Scientific Director for SLAS. Joining me today, Mr. Greg Vladimir of Allsight. Hi, Greg. Hi, Mike. How are you? Hi. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about your role there, uh, how you prepared for it, and what you do today? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the chief scientific officer and one of the scientific co-founders of Allsight, a biotech startup company in Vienna, Austria. We have been around for about two years. The founding members of Allsight were all working together previously in academia when we realized that there was a little bit of a, a translational gap in screening models for small molecule drugs and other biologics in the anti-cancer space, where we started to image, use high content imaging to predict drug responses in primary material and mostly for precision medicine. Actually, we ran one of the first functional precision medicine trials. It was published a couple years ago. And we realized that we could utilize this technology for many other things and many other aspects uh, in translational research. And fast forward a couple of years comes Allsight, which has really been able to take the ideas we had in academia, build on them, um, stress upon a lot of robust detail and uh, scalability and offer the services to uh, other companies and larger firma. Got it. Thanks for that explanation. Uh, sounds like a fun journey and a, and a whirlwind for you. Tell me a little bit about the term precision medicine, because I think people hear it a lot and they don't exactly know where to go with it. Okay, what's your definition of precision medicine? Yeah, absolutely. This definition, I think, changes depending on whom you ask. But for us, it's the right drug for the right patient at the right time. It's simple and it's easy to say, but it's actually extraordinarily challenging to do. There's a lot of precision medicine trials that are going on when it comes to biomarker standards or sequencing. But for our aspect of it, it's taking a drug or taking a library of drugs, running it through patient samples, and then functionally determining what drug is going to be the best for that patient at any given time in their treatment program. Okay. And describe to me what functionally best for the patient means. I'm assuming some functional genomics. I'm assuming some patient cell modeling. I'm assuming some drug response curves. Um, is there something else that's a fundamentally special sauce to all sites procedure? Yeah. So that's a great question. So it's not just about cell death. It's about targeted and differential cell death. In precision medicine and cancer medicine in particular, we're targeting one particular one population, which is the cancer cell. This is what we want to kill off. We don't want to throw the patient into aplasia. We don't want to wipe out their entire milieu of cellular or the cellular repertoire. We want to focus on one particular population and killing off that. So what we do is we add in drugs to screening plates that already contain patient material. We determine what is cancer and what is not cancer by using diagnostic biomarkers as a pathologist would, for instance, uh, CD. 34 for AML cells. And we can tell at the single cell level, the drugs that kill off specifically the marker positive cells versus everything else in the culture. And we call this a differential cell death. And that's how we rank drugs to provide to, to patients, at least in the academically run precision medicine trials we published previously. Got it. So differential cell death, that sounds pretty cool. And that sounds tough to interpret. So I'm, I'm glad you guys are doing that work. Um, tell me about how image analysis and AI come into this. I know speaking of terms like precision medicine that are bandied about, um, AI means a lot of things to a lot of people. What does it mean to your company and how are you using it? Absolutely. Um, I think that the terminology of AI and deep learning are thrown around quite a bit. And for us, how we define this is uh, what is a cell? And where is a cell? So we do a, a considerable amount of imaging. Our current capacity is about 250,000 images per day. 
And in this, we have layers of channeled information, uh, which is each channel is a biomarker for a or a, a diagnostic marker for a subpopulation or a functional marker such as a viability die readout. And so what we do is we use multi-step deep learning approaches to one, find the cell in my image. What is the cell? Where is the nuclei? What is the cell? Is it clumped together with other cells? If it is, how do we get it out? So those are all deep learning approaches, just finding the cell. And then what is the cell? Is it a marker positive X? Is it marker positive for Y? And then once we have where is the cell and what is the cell, then we can do all of our calculations on differential cell death or other phenotypic screening that we're working on. Got it. And I know we've explored this with other people on this podcast before, but it's the forest for the trees problem, right? You as a human know what a cell looks like, but the computer needs to be taught component by component how to recognize that from a complex image. Absolutely. And so what we do is for both of these networks that we're utilizing or both of these aspects that we're utilizing, both what is a cell or where is a cell and what is a cell, we've gone in and we've trained and classified many different both indications and stains and markers and functional markers so that the networks can be robust. And we find that over a considerable amount of training data, they do become robust to changes in immune composition or changes in patient treatment or changes in indication. And they become robust enough to also changes in the 3D aspect because we're looking at 2D planes. But the second you put in this that axis on 3D imaging, you need to find where your cells are in uh, microaggregates, we call them. And there we can also utilize these networks to pull out cells within microaggregates. So we can learn a number of robust features in order to determine what or where and what is a cell from these images. That's amazing. So what you're saying, if I can restate it back to you, is your networks become robust enough to understand even when the cells change and appear to change in the microscopy or the imaging you're doing, the network can still detect how it changed on a patient-by-patient basis. Exactly. Because ultimately, if we were to train networks on baseline, on cells that weren't changing, we would never see what we need to. Cancer is an extraordinarily heterogeneous uh, makeup of dead and dying apoptotic cells, uh, robustly turning over cells, uh, activated immune cells in some cases. And so if we can't create networks robust to cells that are blebbing, cells that are going through apoptosis, uh, cells that are moving around and cells that are clumped together, then we can't analyze our images. So it was a necessary step to do in order to move forward in how to really use deep learning for image analysis, especially when it comes to primary material and all the complications behind this. So tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about the complications behind primary analysis and primary patient samples, because I know it's not as simple as just we get a cell, we build an organoid, something happens. There's a, as you said, complex milieu of cells involved. Tell me about how difficult it is to handle patient samples. Yeah, so what we actively do not do is we don't take a sample from a patient and outgrow anything or select anything. So all of our screening is done as fast as possible from the patient into the screening plates. And then there's an incubation step, but our incubation step is between one and four days, depending on what we're looking at. So there is no organic outgrowth. There is no tumor cell line outgrowth. It's all pure patient material. The complications behind that are obviously the amount of material we're getting is very limited. If it's a bone marrow biopsy, if it's a blood sample, depending on the indication and the manifestation of the disease, if it's malignant pure effusion or ascites that contains quite a number of immune cells, well, we might get a lot of liquid material, but it may not be a lot of cells. We need to obviously plan our experiments around being very careful with this limited resource. Not to mention that every patient has a little bit of a different background. Have they gone through chemotherapy or radiation? Uh, treatments. Do you have a lot of background cell death because of this? 
then, you know, your analysis has to be robust to all of these kind of aspects that each patient and individual is different, just like the samples are going to be. And then on top of that, it's logistics. How do you get the samples? How many study centers do you need? How do you operate these study centers? What we find is it's worth going through all of the logistics because just the model systems are better because they're as close as possible as we can get to a patient or let's say clinically relevant translatable results. Got it. My head is already swimming with the complexity of this process, but I'm very glad that you guys have a handle on it. Tell me, I'm curious, are you more of a data and analysis company that happens to also do wet lab work or are you a platform and bench lab work company that happens to do data? Well, that's a trick question. We are 20 people at the moment. We're about, let's say, 40% of us are dedicated to computational resources. That is deep learning, driven image analysis, software development, scalability. So Allstate is an entirely cloud-based company. So all of 100% of our work is scalable. The only thing limiting us is microscope capacity. So we spend a lot of time on computation and a lot of time on new ideas. How do we recycle what other people are doing for image analysis, but then how do we take our own flavors into it? We're 40% wet lab, so people doing the experiments, people creating the model systems. Um, if we need to do, use a new indication we've never used before, we don't just take it from a patient and, and toss it into an assay plate. There's a lot of work that goes behind this to make sure the assays are robust. And then we're about uh, the rest of the team is made up of people running clinical trials, uh, so clinical study manager full time. We have a, a more than 40 study centers open within within Europe. So there's a lot of resources behind that. So let's call it computate. We're very good at their computation. We have dedicated ourselves over the past five or six years just to single cell image analysis. But then also the model system is extraordinarily important. So the wet lab scientists are there as well in defining how we screen these primary materials. Amazing that so much stuff can be done with 20 people and a cloud-based repository. <laughs> and exactly. Wow. So um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I'm curious about how you got into this line of work. I mean, what? how did your background and your education prepare you to do this? And uh, what types of lessons from your career path can be learned for SLAS members who want to get into the precision medicine space? Yeah. So I, um, my PhD is actually in immunology from the US. I moved to Europe on an EMBO fellowship aimed at systems biology. So I wanted to go from more kind of mouse-driven, animal-driven work into more larger systems bio work, mainly genetics, genomics. Um, and then actually during my postdoc, almost one of the, on the first day of my postdoc, one of the co-founders and I started in the same lab on the first day as postdocs, we realized that I have a background in imaging and he has a background in image analysis. And at the same time, we were trying to set up screens and primary material for inflammation assays from an immunological point of view. And we realized we could do this with cancer cells and we could do it robustly with automated imaging. There was a dogma that automated imaging really needed, that was used for laboratory automation, automatic imaging needed adherent cells. And so once we broke the dogma that you could do this with what is ultimately about 75% non-adherent cells in primary patient material, then we could expand and expand and expand. And we realized that we had become clinically translatable really early on after some early adopters here in Vienna took our precision medicine program and ran with it. The next step into finding funding enough to create a robust system that we could offer to many people was ultimately the founding of a biotech company. And this is absolutely not the road that I imagined to go down, but 
we had an idea back in 2013 and we stuck with it and we really didn't stop developing it at all. And this is kind of the process that we built. The company comes out of us just absolutely needing more space and more resources in order to continue to build. So no problems, just break a fundamental paradigm in biology, <laughs> be very smart to start and have a lot of people adopt your technology. <laughs> it seems like I a mean, good it, path. <laughs> yeah, it is. But, but yeah, thank you for that summary. <laughs> no, <There> was, <laughs> great work. <laughs> but, uh, there's a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of people involved in nearly what is an incredible amount of development from 2013 on, not just the people who are working at Allsight, but then also our academic colleagues, our clinical colleagues. And it has been really an honor to watch this idea that we've had grow and have so much support on this. It's one of the reasons why I've stayed in Vienna also is because it was born here. Uh, and it really is amazing to watch an idea grow and find the support and a foothold. That's really great. And it's uh, really motivational and inspirational to our audience, I believe. So tell me a little bit about SLAS and you. Who do you look to inspire in SLAS? Who do you look to network with, with us? What are the topics you're interested in hearing about more from our community? So I was just in um, San Diego for the January SLAS 2020 meeting, and I couldn't believe that I was sitting in talks, especially from uh, big pharma companies, early discovery, who are working on image analysis programs, particularly one talk I remember on unsupervised learning, and they're asking the same questions that we're asking, but they're utilizing cell lines or cell line material, and we're utilizing primary samples. And I'm going, well, we have the same ideas. Why can't we combine forces with our model systems and our computational crew and their resources and also their kind of larger grow or, or let's say much more capacity they have? Because we're all trying to solve the same problem. So there must be some sort of access that we can all join forces on. And in fact, there was also another, a couple other talks, I think one from the NIH at SLAS 2020 that did just that. They created resources for high content screening and model system development and repositories that you could launch externally and internally to help colleagues. And I think this is one of the things I really like is that everyone there is there for a reason. It's not a conference about a disease where everyone's looking at it from a different aspect. This is a screening conference. We're all trying to kind of do better screening with better model systems and to get people together to solve the similar problems, I think is very powerful. So that's what I'm looking forward to also, hopefully at the next one, which depending on the current situation, hopefully happens next year. Actually, just briefly uh, to give context to those who might listen to this in a future year, this is April of 2020. And, and it's interesting that you put out the current situation. Right now, as everyone listening might know, we're in the midst of a coronavirus outbreak worldwide. Tell me, is there some change that you've made either to your working practices or to the focus of your scientific interests based on this? At the moment, no. We have reduced, obviously, our wet lab capacity, but the Vision of Allsight in the very beginning was to be a company that can very robustly expand its resources. So being completely dedicated to cloud computing environments, working from home is relatively straightforward. So nearly 80% of us are quite are, are still working full days at home, both organizing uh, clinical trials or organizing clinical studies or on the computational aspect and supporting our wet lab scientists. That's great. And then thank you very much for keeping the good fight going in the midst of all this. Greg, any closing thoughts you want to offer to the SLAS community? 
I have to reiterate my point from what I have learned during SLS 2020 and that a number of us are fighting or let's say fighting are, are trying to solve the same problems in image analysis, especially when it comes to robustly launching deep learning based algorithms and working towards better model systems. By coming together and doing this and combining forces, I think it can be done a lot faster and a lot better. Uh, and so we're always looking for collaborations, both from other other smaller biotech companies or larger pharma companies that have the same vision as we do with image analysis and, and primary model systems. And if we can kind of drive this forward, I think it can be better for everybody because we can bring better tools and better drugs into the clinic faster. Thank you very much for that last thought. Do you want to leave people with an idea of where to reach you? Yeah, absolutely. You can email me if you'd like to, if you have any questions about what Allsight does, gregory.vladimir at allsight.com, or search me on LinkedIn or Twitter, Twitter handle Greg Vladimir. I'm happy to be contacted with questions uh, or other ideas. Don't hesitate. Thank you. And thank you for being a really great guest on this episode of New Matters. Thanks, Greg. Thank you so much. Appreciate the time. 